Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is the man who invented the weird rocket spinning whirly gig. <laughs> I have the Adam Glass, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> right. I mean, what, my favorite thing about this is is I, I, it's not to derail things completely right here at the beginning, but this 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 movie is fairly old, not old old, yeah. but like predates a lot of the things I watched on TV as a child. Which it was mostly the Discovery Channel because you've met my mother, um, yes, and uh, and you've met me too. So those things where they work in tandem, um, and uh, there's a lot of World War II shows on Discovery and then History Channel when it was invented. Uh, this is pre them both deciding to just do weird shit, right? Like when they actually did the yeah. thing that was on the package, um, and uh, watched a lot of World War II documentaries. Uh, and I have seen that fucking piece of footage eight fucking million times, Adam. Yeah. Now, I'm going to admit that probably in 1975, it was novel. That not a lot of people had spent a lot of time <laughs> with weird water-spinning rocket whirly gig machine. Yeah. But I personally have spent far too many hours of my life with that thing. And when it showed up, I was, hey, fucking, there it is. It's back. <laughs> Love I haven't that seen you in a few years after I moved to Japan. Where did you come from? My good old friend, uh, Rocket Whirligig. <laughs> um, no, actually, on that note, uh, I, uh, I read an article a long, long time ago uh, in the formation of my youth that was formatted as an April Fool's. It was, an, it was the April issue of Games Magazine, which is a, a Oh, I remember magazine. Games. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and it was formatted as a guess which of these are real, and it turned out they were all real. But it was all suggested weapons, uh, principally during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, some which made it to the testing phase, some which a better mind came along and said, no, please don't. This will kill uh, a lot of people and not the ones <laughs> we want to kill. My very, my very favorite was working on the premise that uh, cats hate water. Okay. Were cat guided bombs. Fuck. That could be dropped from an airplane over the ocean, and the cat would naturally want to head to the nearest ship so that it would land on dryness and not on water. I love it. This is that one was brilliant. supposedly tested. Yeah, I've heard about one that thing. The, yeah. The I've cats about... in question. Passed out oh, nice. <laughs> while they nice. were dropping. So I I've heard about ones that use uh, birds to like guide missiles, where they like, uh, had a really simple input inside. I've definitely heard yeah. about that. Uh, bat bombs were something that I believe actually made it to actual utilization, uh, and that was the idea that uh, incendiary devices hooked to large bats, who could be dropped in mass over Japanese cities, uh, would crawl into crevices where bats like to sleep inside of buildings and then the bombs would go off um of course the japanese themselves had the balloon bombs where they just tied bombs to weather balloons and let them into the pacific uh air currents um and a few of those successfully made it to the u.s i'm not quite sure how far they made it to get to the u.s i don't know where they were launched from but yeah i don't know either uh but yeah so (laughs) But cat bombs is what I thought about immediately when I saw the rocket wheel. 
Yeah, I mean, I've just seen that footage. <laughs> Who thought so that was a good idea? Times. I've seen that footage, and then and and you know, it always inevitably because there's more than one piece of footage of that. Yeah, you know, different versions of that, and it always eventually tips over, and you're just like, "What were you?" I mean, the the answer was draw, get a cable of the beach. Okay, like that's the question. The 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 that's the answer to the question. How do we get a cable up the beach without uh, without somebody getting murdered to do it? Okay, uh, but like it's an insane answer. Like it's just like yep, this, and it, it's so obviously super wasteful of energy. Like it, it takes forever to ramp up, and then it's just terrible. Pat, your bird guided bombs, yes, were pigeon controlled, and the main mind behind Project Pigeon, later renamed Project Orcon or Organic Control, uh-huh. uh huh, was B. F. Skinner. Okay, B. F. Skinner, the behaviorist. <laughs> Wanting to develop, yeah. No, I was wondering where. Bumps. Yeah, I think I may have heard about it in an anthropology class. Actually, now that I think yeah. about it, uh, but yeah, no. I'm someone I, saying, definitely... "Hey, by the way, Skinner was an idiot." Um, yeah. So. No, like I definitely I remember reading about that, and I was like, "This is just the fucking weirdest shit I've ever heard in my entire life." Uh, I suppose I it, it could have come up in a stay in your lane. Um. Yeah, I think it was. I I don't remember what the exact. Uh, I I think it was probably like. Um, it's just going, just paying into the standard like anthropologist laughing at psychologists, yeah. Uh, and the like, there's just a weird sort of friendly rivalry right there, and uh, and and sometimes it's fun to just bring up really batshit insane ideas. Pat, before we get into our movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you get access to a non-Criterion bonus episode. We put together a list for uh, our supporters to vote on to decide what movie we're going to watch, and we get uh, an episode. Uh, More often than not, we have a guest over there, um, and we uh, we have fun. We watch a a very wide variety of films over there. Sometimes Uh, we have fun. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes we have fun. Sometimes we... It has been a very long time since I made a list of all bad movies. That's true, that's true. So. I, I'm just saying that every so often we, we actually somehow commit a human rights abuse against ourselves. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Uh, we've, uh, you know, we've possibly watched a wider array of films for our bonus episode than the Criterion Collection itself is showing us. A collection that contains uh, Armageddon... <laughs> Fishing with John, and yeah, um, a collection with, as far as I can tell, zero rhyme or reason to it in and of right. itself. Anyway. And a Beastie Boys video anthology, which um, is, by the way, the best item in the entire fucking collection. No argument from me. I sir. will never, I will never surrender that point. I die on that hill. That's we, we, uh, we unfortunately weren't doing the Patreon when we hit the Beastie Boys video anthology. It might have been interesting. <laughs> It do might other be video to revisit that and just do other video You can still do right? that. I mean, we could like you can always have flashback, you know, months where we're like, uh, you know, right. we did this a long time ago, but we're curious like what other, you know, music video anthologies uh yeah. exist out there. They're hard to get though. That's the problem with that one. It's like that's going to be challenging. I'm going to have to buy I had to buy the Beastie Boys one. 
Yeah. Uh, no, I say have which, to. Which is, it, again, as, as not as a thing you regret doing. Yeah, so. I, yeah. I won't. I, I am blessed with forever the memory of my son dancing on the couch to Beastie Boys movies. Awesome. It was beautiful. Excellent. My, like, three-year-old just going nuts over it. That is beautiful. I had to watch, like, 12 hours of fucking music videos. <laughs> ah, it was such a great day. But yeah, we uh, some movies over there that we've watched. Uh, at least one of which has actually ended up in the Criterion Collection since, and that is uh, Failsafe, Silly Lumet. Uh, we also watched Lumet's uh, Dog Day Afternoon, which it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, it seems like the sort of thing someday, Criterion right? would put it in. Has, like, yeah, it's unbelievable that it's not right. Yeah. Um, We've also watched some stuff from the Eclipse series as sort of a backdoor uh, into good movies. Uh, Louis Maul's God's Country, we watched from that. And then uh, sometimes we draw from lists like uh, Conservapedia's lists of worst children's movies. Um, which are actually all wonderful, right? Because that's which, the way that which, system works. I mean, some of them are bad, but well, that's true. I mean, uh, as we not for watch, the reason uh, that Conservapedia thinks they're bad. Right. But, but from that, we watched uh, Ernest Goes to Camp. Yeah, but that was uh, kind of our our own fault for putting that on there. Like it was fine, but like, yeah, there's actually a lot of really good movies on that Conservopedia list because it's fair. Again, it's a, it's some weird upside right. down world. Uh, yeah, the Big Green is just a classic, isn't it? But yeah, we watch like I said a lot of different movies over there, and for just a dollar a month, you can vote on what we're watching, listen to the new episodes, and get access to the old episodes as well as suggest. Uh, votes for the future. We've had a number of votes suggested by users, uh, by supporters, uh, and we greatly appreciate them. Uh, And, uh, yeah, thanks, guys. For a little extra, $5 a month, we promise to thank those people by name on air. So thank you to Adam Speakerman for your continued $5 support. Uh, A little bit of that, we do something that I think is really, really special, actually. Uh, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. And for $10 a month and above, uh, I get that art printed up on a postcard, write a little thank you note to you, and mail that off. Uh, So it's a great way to get a little bespoke art um, made by by Pat. uh, Yeah, I mean, it's... it's Listen, Pat, you're a pretty good artist. I'm doing okay. Don't say artist if you're putting it in air quotes. I, I, you know me too well because I literally did. <laughs> I know you did. I heard the pause. Um, but uh, but for people at that level, we'd like to thank them on air as well. So thank you to Michael McGrath and Jason Westhaver who continued ten dollars and above supports. Uh, greatly appreciate that. Really, really helps us keep going. And uh, yeah, thanks. Patreon.com/slash/LostInCriterion if you want to get involved with that. And as I said, we greatly appreciate it. So this week we're watching a fairly interesting movie from uh, director Stuart Cooper. It's called Overlord. It's from 1975, and it is uh, made in conjuncture with the Imperial. I'm sorry, with the Imperial War Museum in Britain, uh, a museum dedicated to the wars of Britain and the Commonwealth nations from 1914 forward. Uh, apparently unironically, as far as I can tell, unironically. (laughs) Uh, The Imperial War Museum does not seem to be uh, anti-war by any means. Uh, Not necessarily even pro-war, and it tries to be apolitical in that 
realm. Not that you can be, but it tries. Uh, it wants to just be a repository of information on wars fought by Britain and the Commonwealth countries. Right. Uh, so they wanted to make a documentary about the uh, the Overlord Tapestry, which is, in the spirit of the Bayou Tapestry, a uh, large selection, I think there's like 30 panels of images of World War II, uh, all hand-woven, um, not great <laughs> yeah, color no, wise, pretty, it's very pretty interesting. Poorly, uh, uh, pretty poorly done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, looks um, looks bad. It's great because I've seen pictures of the Queen like unveiling one of the panels and all of them on display in the Pentagon. And it's like, oh, somebody, somebody is pretending that this is artistic. And yeah, like uh, if they if they had done it in the style of the Bayou Tapestry, and obviously that's a weird throwback thing. Uh, that would be really weird. Like, let's be clear here. Like, just a but everybody in profile. Like, just like yeah, it would be weird. Planes presented in the same way horses on the Bayou pa- Tapestry are presented would be exceptionally uh, off-putting. But yeah, at least no, in that really in that manner, actually. in that manner, it would be interesting. This is just well, not yeah. Interesting. But like, okay, so but here's the problem, right? That's interesting in exactly the opposite way that whoever made right. this wants it to be interesting, right? Because right. like this is not bi- interesting the, as a piece of art. The Bayou right. Tapestry is interesting as a piece of art, period. Right. Uh, and and was presumably is, when it was made an interesting piece of art, just in the sense that yeah. like on its scale and its and its and what it was attempting yeah. to accomplish, right? Um they have a, a similar purpose, right? I mean, fundamentally, yeah. right? Uh all the, those uh, kind of things are the glorification of that that yeah, of, of the, the overlord uh, overlord embroidery, however, is uh, I don't know that it was ever meant to be a piece of art. Now there is one scene I've seen from it of uh, of a battle in place, um, panel number thirty two, uh, called Totalize, uh, that has bombs exploding in the air and. Uh, Soldiers and tanks, and it it visually is maybe kind of interesting, yeah. uh, but but the most commonly uh, displayed panel that I've seen is just like a picture of uh, um, Churchill and Field Marshal Brook, and uh, <clears throat> it's got this weird shell sh- cell shading thing about it that just it doesn't really. Well, I mean, and that's I mean that's a problem with just the whole design of the entire thing, right? Is it has that cell yeah. shading thing going on, right? Which is is a little just off putting, just straight yeah. up. Just it, it just is. It is visually off putting, like the whole yeah. thing. Uh, and and you know I can assume that the whole thing was created. It's you know it's what nineteen sixty nine, right? So or nineteen sixty eight. So it's it's going to automatically feel like somebody's attempt to like counteract the vietnam war and like that right and, and right, so, right like anything that's made in that time period that has a pro-war stance yeah it's production it started in 1968 and didn't finish until 1974 so like it's being put it's, together it's, in, exactly it's that yeah. thing where you're like it's that thing that happened especially a lot during uh vietnam but we get it now yeah. too it's like oh all these people are protesting the the war 
what about World War Two, huh, fuckers? And then like yeah. people do really outrageous, overly expensive things to like prove that like, well, we won that one. So I mean, you know, this is just this a very weird reaction that you, that just happens, right? Yeah. And this yeah. feels like it's part of it. It just does. So like, I could be totally wrong. Yeah. It wasn't actually the uh, the Imperial War Museum that wanted to make that documentary. Sorry, I misspoke. It was director Stuart Cooper wanted to make that. That's uh, good because I was going to say, like, it seems like he, if that were the case, I was like, man, he really pulled, like, an each cow on them and really, like, <laughs> right, right. Tokyo Olympiad did yeah. this whole fucking thing and be yeah. like, hey, guys, you want a picture about, you want a movie about a tapestry? Yeah. How about this, huh? So, uh, so okay, Stuart, what Cooper, Stuart Cooper, who, who got to start as a, as a, uh, Actor. He uh, he's an American born, but he principally acted in Britain. Uh, he played uh, Roscoe in The Dirty Dozen, among other roles. Okay. Um, uh, then he started making films in the seventies, um, and this is uh, his nineteen seventy five work, which uh, won the Silver Bear, um, the jury prize at the Berlin Film Festival that year. Um, but he wanted to make that documentary. He was interested in. Periphery information, so he's going through the archives at the Imperial War Museum, and that's when he decided to make uh, make uh, Overlord as exists instead. Overlord yeah. is a synthesis of archival footage uh, and fresh shot footage. It's about half archival footage uh, shot during the war. I was even going to lean, lean higher than that. It feels like more than half, but okay. I mean, I'm yeah. sure that's the actual actual number, but um, I don't I don't know the minute by minute breakdown. Offhand. Right, but I, we'll just go with half. And unfortunately, I don't have that information in front of me, even though I have seen it in the last few days. Uh, but uh, he also shot new footage um, with vintage cameras on vintage film stock uh, to tell the story of a young soldier who uh, joins up and dies on his way to Normandy. Uh, well, he was... He yeah, he was drafted, wasn't he? Or Yes, he is drafted. hard to tell, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, given that the principal first half hour of this is the idea that he has been torn away from his life in order to go right. to boot camp and and uh, demoralized, um, yes, I, I assume he was drafted. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I just wanted to double check because, I mean... From a purely sort of contextual standpoint, that does matter in our discussion because right, what happens in his experience from then on is informed by the yeah. way in which he ends up in yeah. it, right? So before we get down to the brass tacks of the movie, there is one other interesting thing that happens on some of the DVD extras. There's an interview with archivists from the Imperial War Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly just talking about the footage and how the footage came to be and the history of war photography and videography, um, which is marginally interesting in its own right. Um, but it is incredibly, incredibly off-putting to hear an archivist talk about how beautiful footage that they acknowledge contained death Talking about the beauty of footage that they acknowledge contains yeah. us watching people die. I mean, I get where you're coming from, but like yeah. you know, at the same time, I I do kind of also understand their, their you know, at, at some point 
things cross thresholds where yeah. you no longer view them at, like, you know, I don't know. Because I feel like we do that a lot in human society. Oh, I'm sure. Period. I'm sure. You know what I mean? Like, and I do that. I'm sure that I we, do that, period. I mean, we literally have buildings where one of the things we house in it is the dead bodies of kings who were buried thousands of years ago. <laughs> That's fair. And we do not refer to them in human terms, right? We do not address them in, like, the way one talks about the death of a human being that they knew, right? And, and, I, and it, it may seem very fast for World War II, but I think, uh, you know, I kind of understand where they're coming from. And, and I can even understand it a little bit because, like, if I get into something really kind of morbid and dark for myself, like, yeah. there is a weird, terrifying beauty that you experience, for example, at, like, for example, for me, like, at the Atomic Bomb Museum. It is, there's something that, something can be so sublimely sad that it can almost yeah. come out the other side beautiful. Like, you're not, like, talking about beauty in the thing, like, we should recreate this thing. Of course not. You're talking about, like, something about, like, so it's so powerful, right? Like, beauty standing is a, is a term for, like, how affecting it is for you uh, in your soul, yeah. right? And I understand that, but where I want to push back against that is that it's not just the idea of the archival footage. The per- did you watch the? No, interview? I got really bored with those Good. documentaries. That's I fine. Because I was fine. like, there was oh boy, there was archivist. a lot. <laughs> there was a lot of material with Overlord, uh, and a lot of it was fairly boring and not that important to watching the movie. Um, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, um, the archivists particularly use the word "beautiful" to describe a scene of a uh, plane being shot down where it sort of skips above the water before ultimately dipping into the ocean. Mm. Uh, And while I can understand a certain beauty in the sadness of shots involving the uh, Atomic Bomb Museum, um, that is more analogous to describing video of the bomb exploding from the air Right, I see what you're saying. As beautiful, yeah, and I see that, what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, um, I still, I still think that we're just probably like we right. we don't share a mental space with the people who yeah. work in that archives, right. right? And we and it's going to be hard for us to understand where they're That's coming fair. from. That's but fair. I'm going to have to assume that they're coming from not a terrible place. I'm going to assume <laughs> that so. they don't I want so. World War Three. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, I just right. have to. I have to assume right. that they're good people right. who just and they did not. They did not necessarily use the word beautiful to explicitly describe, say, the footage we have of the burned and bloated bodies of German soldiers who had been uh, aerial bombed. You know? Right. Uh, but they do describe as beautiful explicitly a uh, a crashing airplane, if I'm remembering correctly. But, yeah. Uh, I don't... I don't appreciate a description of beautiful... When I am actively seeing video footage of a real person being killed, yeah, and it's I understand that. Not a thing. I understand I, that. Not not terminology I want to hear, uh, but uh, <laughs> but keep in mind, I, like, not this is definitely not going to excuse them because, like, wolf, this is not a good yeah. thing. But keep yeah. in mind what their job is, right? I mean, right. if you if you keep and maintain a war museum, yeah, and and not and and this is like especially this kind of war museum and not something like Auschwitz or something like that. Right. You're in a weird space already, honestly speaking, for like human beings, right? Yeah. Because you're – I understand that we – like 
obviously there's a need to keep history uh, aware and in people's minds. I, that's clear and obvious. But at the same time, you have taken on the role of the sort of the curator of the deaths of thousands of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and again, like something like Auschwitz museum has a very specific stated purpose, which is we must teach people to never make this mistake again. Like, right. It should never, ever, ever happen again. Right. right. That's a very clear stated purpose. We, you know, the deaths of these people will must yeah. have some impact on the world. Right. Un- but, like, unfortunately, these kind of war I, museums are not built that right. way. Right. And that's, and that's a problem, right? Because the person who's Something... a curator of that kind of museum is not does not have a motivation, right? Based, I mean, they could. You, you, I'm sure there are some who have that motivation. Like, I have to teach people about this, right? Because it, not teaching people about this would be a, would be a crime in and of right. itself. Right? Certainly, certainly, archival work for all of history is good. Not not just the history we like. Not just the right. Uh, we need we need those archives. Um. To unironically call your museum the Imperial War Museum. Oh, I know. Maybe. When I saw that, I was like, when that popped up, I was like, what now? Right, right. Now, where where maybe this gets, our conversation here gets a little more messy, is that they did fund this movie and approved of this movie and approved of the use of archival footage within this movie. So, is this movie an anti-war movie? I would say... That it is of mixed opinions. Um, yeah. I would say, it, well, mixed opinions in as much as sort of neoliberalism is mixed opinions. <laughs> yes. I would say, I would argue that this movie is making the classic statement of, like, well, we had to do it, but I'm, but we should try to make sure it never happens again kind of thing. You know what I mean? That There's that weird hedgy middle space that, that yeah. a, a majority of modern society exists in. Where you can be like, wars are good when they help people, yeah. but we should try to get like. And then we talk a lot about peace, right? The idea that you can achieve peace through the through the barrel of a gun, right? Right, is a is a very modern. I say neoliberal, but it even exists pre neoliberal. But it, it's yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying that that like that peace through war mentality. Yeah, is a thing that I'm sure that is the basic fundamental thought of this thought process of this film and those people in the archives. Yeah. Um, this is a story of a young man pulled from his life, dehumanized at every turn for the first quarter of this movie, uh, and ultimately forced to die a pointless death. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Before even reaching Omaha Beach. Uh, so in that regard, this is the story of someone who is what James Garner's character does not want to end up as in the Americanization of Emily. Right. Um, I think it suffers in part from the problem that we've talked about with things like Full Metal Jacket, which is explicitly an anti-war movie, but you wouldn't know it from its fan base, Right. Uh, right, it is right. it is the movie that shows real war, and this one, in fact, uses actual, literal images of real war. Uh, and uh, in showing it, it is there is encouragement, and and again, reminded of the line from Americanization of Emily: "We wear our widows' weeds like nuns." 
uh, and perpetuate war by exalting its sacrifices. There is the idea that just presenting this is lionizing those who died. And I'm not sure that the argument in the movie is overtly in any way arguing that he died pointlessly. No, I don't think it is. I think you and I comprehended his pain yeah. pointlessly, and I'm sure lots of people who watched it comprehended it that way. But the movie does not make that argument. Yeah. The movie, I think, fundamentally makes the argument, uh, the classic argument, which is like some of, some people had to die to make this work. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing about this film is I feel like you could read it either way, depending on the baggage you bring yeah, into, for sure. the, into the film and the lens you're looking at it. Right. Because and we do get characters to... talking about how they're just cannon fodder, right? Very explicitly, right. very candidly. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, and I, yeah, for sure. But your your ideology that leads to the 1968 creation of the uh, of the Overlord embroidery is that, yeah, a lot of people were just cannon fodder, but that cannon fodder is what stopped Hitler. So exactly. it is exactly. it is a bravery to be cannon fodder and to know right. that fate. Right, and it, and this is you know we'll get into this further, I'm sure, throughout today, but like. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the fundamental argument being made here, and and yeah, it's a I had to, I actively resisted my own personal baggage, yeah, because it was too easy to read this as an anti war film, right? Because it just obviously wasn't like it just there's too much other stuff around it to make it a anti war film. It's just right. not. It's an anti. I don't know. Like it might you could classify it maybe as an anti fascism film. Uh, but only in that weird, you know, post World War II. Well, we're all anti-fascist because we beat Hitler, sort of way. Yeah. While, while simultaneously yeah. building explicitly fascist policies. Um, but even within that, even within that, the only time uh, the Nazis are really explicitly mentioned is in that, that comedy that, film, which is the best part of the entire film. Let's be clear yeah, here. Yeah. Um, had, were you familiar with that elsewise? I was not. Had you ever and seen I, that did some, I did some investigation yeah. later just because I was like curious about it. It was, it was it's yeah. interesting. Uh, I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff, but mostly yeah. just as an art form. I find repurposing of material to generate something radically different. <laughs> right, right. An, a, an interesting process. Uh, yeah, found footage remix culture. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, it actually actually existed a long time before YouTube. Oh yeah, so. I mean, you know, so. we, we you know, it's been around forever. Like Monty yeah. Python's intros and yes. extra, outros are all that kind of that those cutouts. Yeah, style. like everything like that has always been very fascinating to me. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. But yeah, the movie you have to almost walk in. You have to sort of try to purge yourself of your own personal biases because it's very easy to read the movie wrong. Right, and and I think we are you and I do we are definitely would be reading it wrong. Yeah, and I suppose that's one reason that the archivists at the Imperial War Museum like this movie so much is that it just sort of presents the information and it presents right. a story of a guy who was pulled out of his own life and died, uh, but it does not say he died pointlessly. It gives right. a I lot mean, of, he's one of, of both of, siding to that argument. Right. He's one of the many, many people who get celebrated on those sort of yeah. D-Day, you know, those right. Liberation Day uh, events and stuff like that, right? Like, that's what, that's the payment that the cannon fodder gets is right. a sort of bulk 
like in in mass celebration of their sacrifice, right? I mean, is that worth anything? No, it's worth it's worth nothing. It's it's just all fucking hot air, right? But like you know, it's what they get, right? And uh, most people are satisfied with that, I think. And I think most people would look at the film and say, "Yeah, like you know, that's a shame, but it had to happen, right?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, it only had to happen because it, we let the world get to the point where it had to happen. Well, but, yeah. I mean, you know, you you and I, like you and I, are yeah. on the same page about this stuff. Like, right, right, right. The 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 time, the points at which this could have all not happened were so are so bountiful. Yeah. You know, and then you know, but you get into the question is like, would you would you punch a Nazi? Yeah. And the answer for me is, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I would punch anybody, but you know, <laughs> I would certainly try to run them out of town on a rail. Yeah. <laughs> At least make that. I'd make that attempt. Uh, but yeah. um, you mentioned a little surprise at at that the movie. Uh, I was most surprised uh, for the cultural artifacts within this film. Uh, by the song, we don't know where we're going until we're there. Okay, uh, and it's it's a song that suggests that even even the uh, idiots in charge don't know where we're going. Uh, but it came out in 1944 and was very popular among evacuees. Uh, well, yeah, I thought it, but you're, I thought yeah. it would be a later parody or pastiche. Uh, yeah, I but, get yeah, but I can yeah. get it right because, like, especially yeah, if you're. An evacuee that probably rings real, yeah. real, real true, right? Right. It's definitely a comedy song. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> this. This movie is is honestly, in some ways, I mean, it's a very challenging movie. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the sense that, like, um, it, it deals with it, it. I I do like parts of it. I don't again like love its sort of pro war stance, but yeah. Uh, I do enjoy the idea of the found footage, obviously, or, you know, the archival footage, but also constructing a D-Day story that's 99% not D-Day. Yeah. Is really, is, is a, is, I, is. It's a fascinating a, choice, right? It is. And it's we, a nice choice in the sense yeah. that we, we build him as a human being extensively, right? right? A lot of World War II stuff focuses on the battle itself. He doesn't get, the, he doesn't even participate in the battle. Yeah. Like the battle is over for him. Before it starts, uh, and while that like while that doesn't send the message you and I wanted to send, it does at least acknowledge the fact that like, right, that, that these are people who spent whose lives were upended for extensive periods of time in just sort of crazy terrible ways. Yeah, prior said, to anything ever happening on on a beach. Obviously, Cooper is American, but he's working in Britain. This is the year after American troops had left Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also four years after MASH came out, right? So it's right. not like, uh, you know, we're, we're firmly in the 70s when, when uh, Peg and Paw's violence in film and, and all of the, you know, so much of film movements right now are about confronting the violent nature of mankind i suppose right for and, sure know, oh absolutely case, like the, the 70s is packed with that yeah. right and, and um, the, yeah but uh, so to make a movie that's attempting to be apolitical in its war stance uh 
at that time. Well, but it, I don't. I don't think. I don't. I don't personally believe that it's, there, this movie is an attempt to be apolitical. Okay. I mean, I. I just don't. I mean, I think. I. I think that's maybe nice to say, and that maybe the Imperial War Museum likes to believe that. But they are there are places literally fucking called the Imperial War Museum. <laughs> That's fair. Like do I don't, think... I do not believe this is an anti. I don't think this is a, attempted to be anti-political. I think it's just. I think it maybe a few people patted themselves on the back and reassured themselves by saying that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I don't think that I don't think that they even truly believe that that was true. Like this, do you think movie, Cooper's making a pro-war film here? I kind of do in a really weird way right like okay it has especially it starts in a it's because it is a person who grows to accept their fate as cannon fodder that's fair he starts off much much more reluctant about interacting with this system and and it, maybe it's it's pro-war in the sense of like talking about brotherhood or something it gets very close to these other guys and is his unit and all that stuff, but like it, it doesn't. So do you come out and tell you that war's bad? Are you kind of ex- kind of making an argument that this is like an adaptation of the uh, Bhagavad Gita? That this is this is about a a man in war accepting his fate? I think so. Yeah. Basically, yeah, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily pro-war, but I would say yeah. that like. If you build a film that's about accepting your fate as a as cannon fodder, you're not necessarily pro war, but you've you're making a very specific statement about the value of human life, right? And about uh, our our places in the universe, right? Because you can make movies about people who actively resist war, right? Right. And those and those are explicitly anti war films, right? A movie about a person. Who refuses to accept his fate as cannon fodder is an anti-war film That's by fair. definition, right? We have watched those movies, right? So the opposite—I mean, this is these sort of like on you know these sort of uh, ontological arguments don't always hold up, but you know, the opposite of that should be a pro-war film, I suppose. Uh, and and suppose I suppose part of our. Part of our conversation here is a uh, equivocal, equival, uh, equivocalization of uh, being apolitical and being uh, sort of uh, non-opinionated about war. Right. I, you know, it can't be the pro-war, anti-war stance here is not. It is part of the film's politics, but if the film is trying to be apolitical, that doesn't mean that it's trying not to say something definitive about war either. Right. And then I think it's important for us <laughs> to acknowledge also a thing that we talked about before, which is you, if you try to be apolitical in an environment, you are essentially confirming the status quo, and the status quo is pro-war. Yeah. Right? Any choice to be, air quotes, right. apolitical when you make a film about war... Right, is is by its nature already pro-war because right. the the current and and long-running sta- standard of thought process the the status quo is war is often necessary and we should do it well. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's that's pro war. I mean, that's by definition pro war, right? So, I mean, maybe they. I'm sure some a lot of people told themselves they were just yeah. trying to tell a story, and then it's but a political. The, but again, at the same time, this does contain footage of us not doing war well, right? The the rocket wheel is a terrible idea and is clearly a terrible idea in the test footage of it. Here's the thing, though. They, they spend so much time on the rocket wheel. I'm not convinced that everybody agrees the rocket wheel is a bad idea. <laughs> I, I, the amount of time in my life that I have seen the rocket wheel makes me leads me to believe that other people don't look at that and see a goofy piece of shit. Just, just a first draft. <laughs> yeah, like, think- I don't know why, but, like, I mean, somehow, because now... I've seen it in the context of goofy shit we cooked up for World War II as, yeah. a, as a History Channel TV show. But I've also just seen it in, like, plain old World War II context where, like, this is just part of it. Like, yeah. I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. I can't guarantee that everybody sees it and is like, yep, this is dumb. But then again, like, we see a lot of dumb things happen to him as part of his growth towards being a dude who's okay getting blown up. Um, I'm not sure that negative things in this movie inherently make it pr- uh, anti-war. Right, right. Because we watch him get degraded in stupid ways that can't possibly make him better at killing people. And we watch a lot of dumb stuff happen that doesn't make a lot of sense and, and sort of leans towards that argument of like, well, the whole art and act of war is stupid. But that's not the argument the movie's making. Yeah. It's like sort of background, like, oh, yeah, it may be stupid, but we got to do it, maybe, is, I think, the best arg- the best sort of reading of that. Like, oh, uh, this, may, this may all be dumb, but it's got to happen, and we got to do a good job, or, you know, we have to do our best, right? I mean, do our good job, I meant more in the sort of, like, the way I talk to my students, like, well, do your best, you know? That's fair. That's fair. Can I... Uh... We'll get them, Tiger. <laughs> So that that giant rocket wheel is called the Panjun drum, and uh, there is uh, there is an account of the final test of the Panjun drum uh, that I may want to read all of right now. Uh, okay, for you. At first, all went well. Panjun drum rolled into the sea and began to head for shore. The brass hats watching through binoculars from the top of a pebble ridge. Then a clamp gave first one. Then two more rockets broke free. Panjin Drum began to lurch ominously. It hit a line of small craters in the sand and began to turn to starboard, careening towards Clementaski, uh, who, viewing events through a telescope lens, misjudged the distance and continued filming. Hearing the approaching roar, he looked up from his viewfinder to see Panjin Drum uh, shedding live rockets in all directions, headed straight <laughs> for him. As he ran for his life, he glimpsed the assembled admirals and generals diving for cover behind the pebble ridge into barbed wire entanglements. Panjandrum was now heading back to the sea, but crashed onto the sand where it disintegrated in violet explosions, rockets tearing across the beach at great speed. Um, um, what I'll say is I would buy into an argument that the Panjandrum was anti-war. Ah. <laughs> uh. Panjim drum is just the the greatest bit of karma within the yeah, British right? war machine. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. Um, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> uh, but Panjim drum is also uh, 
established in a series in the film of a bunch of ideas, some of which clearly are working. The chain flail to take out mines and barbed wire works. Right, is working, the, yeah. The tank that is laying a canvas roadway uh, over the beach. Looks crazy as shit, but it's probably Looks working. crazy and maybe is working. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I mean, I guess I, I'm... I would assume so. I don't know. Yeah. Like again, it's at I, least I, doing what it's designed to do. Right. Whether no, or not, it's, it's not shooting rockets at people. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not that is allowing people to, I don't know, march behind it. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a wild. It's a wild one, but, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, whatever. Like, it's just a goofy thing, and I've just seen it so many times in my life. Yeah. It it, it does give me joy when I see it, because it's just the funniest thing to watch. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it, it yeah, those, the, all that stuff, though, doesn't, it, to a certain extent, this movie does feel like it's affected by the fact that they wanted to use archival footage and there are limits to what exists and what that will allow to happen. Um, not so much that they wanted to make an anti-war film or something like that, but just that like they just throw in, sometimes it just feels like they just throw in shit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly well constructed, but sometimes it's like, why is this in here? I don't understand. Yeah. Sometimes it just sometimes a lot of times it feels constructed, and then every so often it feels like somebody just literally just found something random and just tossed it in. Right. I'm right. Like I don't know why this is in here. I don't know why you're showing this to me, but okay, here we are. The archival footage of men bored waiting for uh, Overlord, the Project Overlord, the Operation Overlord, to actually get started, of just waiting in seclusion until Normandy actually happens. Uh, is maybe actually interesting. Yeah. In just how banal it is. Well, right. Um, and that's, and that's a lot of what we see in this movie that does, that is actually interesting is the yeah. people just sort of hanging around. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's an- another thing. Like the archival footage is interesting enough in its own right <laughs> Is the story put on top of that actually interesting? I was trying to think about that. And and I would say that in a lot of ways the story stacked on top of it is actually more interesting. Uh, just in the sense that, like, the guy, the, the director does do a fair amount of interesting, like, storytelling technique stuff with, like, you know, um, our main character has a sort of, internal life that that's that, fair. Is, that operates separately from anything he's physically doing at the time uh and right. especially and gets more morbid and, and without the of, dream sequences and the daydreaming oh no without the daydream without those sequences this movie's boring yeah. shit like right like honestly <laughs> speaking even the right. archival footage wouldn't save it like right it's right. it's just a boring ass story about a dude who doesn't right. want to die eventually eventually dying yeah. because and and actually, the funny thing about this is, and, and, and it's important, I think, to understand this, his acceptance or lack of acceptance of that fate is irrelevant. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's what, it's, you know, he can't get out of it. 
he's not going to be able to get out of it. Um, and, and, you know, it's impossible for him to get out of it is what I mean. Yeah. And, and his death is not something preventable. Um, it is interesting to watch him know it's coming, Yeah. which you get into that fascinating thing in a story, right? Because he knows it's coming. We know it's coming, but he can't possibly know it's coming. Right. So it's for him. It's just a belief that he's going to die. Whereas for us as an audience and as a story, we know it's a thing we know, but, um, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it, it, yeah, without the flashback and not the flashback, I don't know what to call them. Yeah. uh, The sort of dream sequences. This is not an interesting movie. Right. Um, so this movie was also inspired in part by a uh, rather famous photograph uh, by Robert Kappa um, called The Falling Soldier. Uh, Kappa's full title for it, Loyalist Militiaman at the Moment of Death, uh, Sarah Moriana, September 5th, 1936. It is the death of a Republican uh, Federation of Liberation eh, Youth uh, during uh, the Spanish Civil War. Um, it is meant to be a photo capturing the moment of a bullet's impact from a sniper on this soldier. Um, it may have been faked, is one thing about the photo. Right. <laughs> um, uh, there is there is quite a debate about whether or not it's authentic. Um, but in any case, Kappa's war photography is a heavy influence on, um, on what a director's trying to do here on, on Cooper's visual style. Um, I do stylistically, there's a lot of things I like going on here. I do like our first two scenes where we get, uh, our main character in, haziness, unfocusedness, running out of the water. It's his first premonition of his own death, but that immediately jumps to the same angle of him running down the street, uh, to get, uh, to get home at the beginning of the narrative. Right. Um, and I think that's very interesting. I think the dream sequence where, uh, the woman he met for a couple hours at that one dance, uh, prepares his body for death. I think that whole sequence is is interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, there, that and that's yeah, that's kind of what I meant in the sense that like that's yeah, not just story wise, but yeah, but they're style-wise. literally carry the film in every yeah. way. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I don't know. As a th- synthesis of archival footage and an actual shot footage meant to mimic the style of that archival footage. Uh, maybe there is something artistically interesting there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's necessarily something artistically interesting there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I assume, you know, honestly, a lot of that stuff depends on the person, like what you're doing with it. Right. I mean, like yeah. it, it is an interesting idea Yeah, at its heart. Right. Like we, but the problem is, is they they've also chosen. You get into this weird sort of. Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. You get into this weird 
sort of double-edged sword. If you want to use archival footage, except for probably anything that's made about this decade that we live in right now, yeah. the only thing about which there is enough ubiquitous footage to do that is war. That's fair. Nothing else has the footage necessary to make that happen. Right. Um, not even day-to-day life has the footage to make that happen. Right. Uh, until, like I said, until probably this decade. In if you this decade, realistic. you could make an archival footage movie about my fucking family. <laughs> right. It would be conceivably possible in this era right now. You might you might have to find some discarded cell phones, but you you could do it. Well, well but especially like, I mean, yeah, true. But like, you could do it in the, especially, you know, if you, if you limit yourself to like the last five years when yeah. I started backing everything up into the cloud. Yes. It, you know, that... Somebody in the future could make an archival movie about literally basically any family. Yeah. Uh, especially if they have children. Um, <laughs> yes. So, that, I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about. But, but you know, if you want to make this kind of movie, you're already essentially choosing to use war as your subject. It has to yeah. be. It's the only subject you can choose. Uh, and so, and I'm not saying that that's like, uh, it's important because, to keep that in mind, because, those two desires have to come hand in hand, right? You're not like, oh, I desperately want to make an archival footage-based movie, but all I have is war, so I guess this is a war film. Yeah. No, you already have to really, really like or adore right. archival footage of war, which yeah. in itself is a kind of gross thing, as we talked about, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> right. You have to really... It, it's one thing, like I described when I'm talking about sort of the Nagasaki uh, Atomic Bomb Museum or something like that, where... We're talking about another space similar to Auschwitz, which intended stated purposes to make sure this never fucking happens again. Yeah, um, that's now a different talk- affair, right? Those can be beautiful and those can right. be powerful, and you can like that place without without liking war, right? Without liking, I can I can very much care about that place and like it a lot without loving atomic bombs, right? Or loving concentration camps, right? right. But like. Loving just archival war footage by its nature means you kind of love war. It just has to be true. Yeah. That's fair. We talked about this with the the Ichikawa films from a couple weeks ago, too, uh, in that there is just just showing the brutality of war. It's not itself an anti-war message either. No, no, not at all. You need you need something more than that. Um. Because just showing the brutality of war without commentary is uh, is archival footage. Is right, and archival right. footage by its nature, presented without context, without context, yeah. will generally support the status right. quo. Which we, yeah, we've right. kind of gone through the sort of arguments That's, there, right? Your facts aren't biased always. Sometimes facts can be biased, I suppose. Yeah, but, no, it's yeah. But but generally, what we do with facts is we build a narrative that connects facts, right? And depending on the facts we choose, and the f- order in which we put those facts, the narrative changes, and right. we can emphasize certain things and de-emphasize other things depending on the narrative we want to tell. Right. Facts themselves are not a narrative. So just archival footage no matter how brutal that archival footage might be. It's a series of facts, but it's not a narrative. Well, and, but let's a, keep there's, there's two things to keep in mind about that, okay? I do want to bring up two key points about that. Sure. Okay? 
for real. Yeah. Uh, number one, and I may have already lost the second point because I'm very sleepy. <laughs> uh, point number one, and so I think this is very con- significant, is facts are by themselves not biased, but the facts you collect, what you choose to record and not record, is biased. Right. And and World War II footage clearly demonstrates It's shot that. with bias. It is shot with bias. Things are things are put on camera, and other things are not put on camera. World War II footage, especially if you're features almost no civilians, except for in positive representations regarding invading troops. Right. Uh, we very rarely it is it is it does happen, but one very rarely sees in American archival footage of Europe for World War II the devastation that's wreaked upon regular human beings. Right. Regular Europeans. When you see corpses, you see the bloated corpses of soldiers. Soldiers. Always you do not enemy see soldiers. people who died in Dresden. It's not right. a thing you see. Right. Uh, and that's important because that's that's a choice. And there's a lot of choices made in the films that, in the recording. And so the archival footage, by its nature, already has a bias. Is the bias right. of the people who shot it. Right. Now, mind you, that's a lot of different people, right? So it's a huge swath of human beings, but though. But it's still possible to put a sort of a general direction of bias onto a group of people, right? The people who are war photographers during World War II in Europe probably have a fairly pro-American involvement in World War II, pro-invasion of Europe and fighting yeah. the Nazis. Well, British, British in this case, but yes. Well, but you know what I mean. But like, yeah. I assume they have access to. To I'm I assume there's archival footage in there that is not purely British. Yeah. It has to be. I mean, it's maybe maybe it is all British, but I'm guessing there must be some stuff that's not. Um, just because you know you you wouldn't want to limit yourself that hard, right? Uh, presumably, the sort of the Imperial War Museum uh, probably has copies of non-British archival footage or something like that. But maybe yeah. not. I don't know. But you know what I mean, right? So especially if we limit ourselves just to the British, well, they certainly, the, the people who join as war photographers have a probably pretty easily identifiable bias. Uh, and that's going to show through in what they film and what they don't film, right? Yeah. Uh, and so there's that. And then I forget what the second point was, but it was probably related to that. So it's <laughs> well, those, those war photographers also have a, uh, even even if they personally, uh, they have an enforced bias too, right? Right. Um, yeah, they also are because, doing a job which they yeah. will get in trouble if they do it wrong. Right. That's also right. true. Yeah. So, so there's that too. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I. I guess I don't even necessarily understand what Cooper's trying to do with this film, particularly I, made well, in 1974. Uh, I. Oh, good question. Because I know I know what I hope he's trying to do. Yeah, but, but that doesn't know. play out, and we already had yeah. that conversation. Well, I have so, a question for you. Did you watch the other one, the other film that's attached to this? The yes, um, one about the. Uh, I can't even put it in the. Con- I can't. <laughs> I can't form enough words. It's not so much about anything, <laughs> right? It's called a test of violence, and it is a 1969 short, um, just featuring work by and sort of live. Depictions of paintings by one uh, Genovese. Okay, Genovese. so my question is: it, What is the, what? But as we talked about, like there, things don't exist without bias. They, it's yeah. that's not a thing. So, what's the purpose of that film? 
The purpose of that film is uh, at a very basic level to portray the art. Right, of, in a sort of live of format, right? Yeah. Uh, um, but, like, what if we get into, like, what it's, like, sort of more political purpose? But since, since uh, yes, Yanovez's own political purpose is to capture the horrors of war at, on civilian life in paintings, largely right. on civilian life, particularly in what we're seeing here. Um, and it is the creation of a test of violence that leads the Imperial War Museum to support Cooper's directing of Overlord and allow him to use their footage, um, according to Criterion's writing on that subject. Right. Uh, so why did he make that movie? That's what I'm trying to understand, because yeah. that movie seems much more explicitly, explicitly anti-war. But again, that movie is, it just happens to, it, it filters it through a level because it's about an artist who is just showing the horrors of war and much more explicitly showing the horrors of war than Overlord does. Right. right? And I, I well, and the thing I want to bring up is we talked about like not, just showing the horrors of war is not by its nature right. uh, anti-war. I would argue that showing the horrors of war and their impact on normal people gets yes. much more closer to like anti-war and is is actually in the anti-war camp than just showing war. Like if you show if you show if you show a, the horrors of war as it as it impacts a bunch of soldiers, uh, I think that's a very different thing than if you show it. Yeah, how it in, about, impacts about normal people, right? And of course, there, there's granularity in that. Let's be very clear here. Like for example, if your war is fought mostly by conscripts and you show them. That context changes that, right? Like if if you're dealing with a bunch of people who are forced soldiers and you're showing their death and like the, the destruction that it wreaked upon them, that's a different context. And that's right. what makes some some of the anti-Vietnam things harder to parse, right? Because you're dealing with a, a, a very conscript-heavy army and then you're like, okay, and now we're going to show how many of these people died, right? But then again... American films don't deal a lot with sort of civilian deaths in Vietnam, which is a yeah. a problem that makes them sort of lean back towards pro-war. But that that's messy. But the point is, this is about civilians. Um, yeah, more overtly, uh, his art uh, seems to be about the horror of war on civilians. Um, I'm not super familiar. Me neither. With, yeah, but I mean that's that's the that's the the takeaway I got from what I right. saw was I I felt that that film was making it pretty clear to me that like about the dis- that war is a terror that we right. wreak upon just regular people right. in the Genovese, world. I feel is is about a social and political realism, right? And he wants he wants mm. to confront the realism of war and not the not the uh, the mythology of war, right? And I think Cooper's work with Genovese reflects that accurately. Mm. I don't think Overlord reflects those same. No, ideas. No, I don't. I I just want to bring that up because I think that yeah. is a. 
it is also it's a, just an important thing to like to bring up. Um, yeah, I yeah, Overlord in that film couldn't be possibly be more different. Yeah, they they don't even look like they're by the same director. Right. Not really. Uh, yeah. So so in that I'm not I don't know that the film, uh, the test of violence is is a, is meaningful. Yeah. A test a test of violence is also just an art film. Period. <laughs> right. Right, and, and and that's the interesting thing, right? It's like, I think it's probably possible, and I think this is probably how this all works out, honestly, is that it is possible for a person who believes the things that we stated we think that uh, Cooper believes about war to engage with Genovese's work without taking it as deep as he wants you to, right? Uh what I mean is, like, you can a person who believes that war is justified and was a good thing for us to do, a thing we had to do, that sort of classic, a necessary evil uh, sort of line of arguments, can look at something created that is explicitly only anti-war, that is just saying, look at how horrible this thing we do is. We shouldn't do this anymore. Yeah. And process it through their own lens and come away with an argument that matches what they already believe. Because parts of those things do align, right? A person saying war is terrible, it's it's a it's a thing is a is a crime that we reap uh, we wreak upon ourselves and upon the weak in our society that we should never do. And a person who's saying, "Well, war is a necessary evil," it's like uh, remember like when we were in high school and we had to do the chemistry like like uh, uh, the sort of with flames you could. Use the the filters, and you could see the colors of the flame. Certain colors show up. Yeah, right? if yeah. your lens is this color, and that color exists inside of a broader understanding of war as evil, you can just sort of filter out the the part that's saying we should never do it again, and only get the it's a war, it's an evil that we have to do. Right? You can. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm it's, I'm having trouble articulating I, it into meaningful. I think things. I get what you're trying to say. I also th- think there's just the possibility that Cooper gets interested in certain things. Yeah, I he, answer. He got interested in uh, Genovese's art, and he got interested in the archival footage at the War Museum. Uh, after after at first, just being interested in the idea of the uh, Overlord embroidery. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure. I, I my my point that I was trying to make was just that, like, yeah. if something is wholly against your belief system, you're probably not going to get super into that art. That's fair. You know what I mean? Like, it's still possible because it's still art, and it and and art operates in a weird space where, like, the artist can believe something very different than what they're actually saying on canvas, and and some of that can come through and stuff like that, right? Um, but but sometimes your peripheral interests could have a different. Uh, someone else could look at them and and see a different context than what you do. I know a lot that, about weird weapons in World War II, as we talked about at the top of the hour. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's kind of yeah, and that's kind of the argument I was trying to make is yeah. that like you can filter out the parts you don't personally agree with. Yeah, and and view it through your own lens and still walk away with it as something you're engaged with, and so. I think that's reflected pretty heavily here because Gervais's work is explicitly anti-war, but yeah. Cooper walked away with it, was able to engage I with it probably because he filtered out parts that didn't align with his belief system. 
I don't know if if Genovese is even necessarily explicitly anti-war. I think he probably is just as I a social mean, I'm reformer. I'm looking at the images. I yeah. it's very hard for me to process these images but I think, as not being anti-war. <laughs> I think possible. they're also they're also just to meant to be realist images too, right? right? Where it's not necessarily making a political argument, and that's that's something we talked about with with say uh, bicycle thieves, where uh, the realism of it seems to be making an argument fairly clearly to us. But there is also just the documentary nature of a realist Right, and that, you're, you're right. Too. I mean, it's quite possible that his art is not anti-war. And then we're, right. all, we're like just... Or that that just does not matter. Now, I think Cooper. I think given Genesis's life and the fact that uh, he was arrested by Franco, um, uh, yeah. probably he's, he's uh, anti-fascist. At the very basic. Right, and there's there's probably a lot of there's a probably a lot of there's a lot of nuance there, right? Like, yeah, fighting fascists might be a war that he thinks is worth fighting, right? If none, if there are no other, you know what I mean? Like, yes, you know, we get into because the the work we're seeing in in at least, uh, uh, Cooper's film is that uh, is that of Genovese, uh showing the atrocities of a fascist government. Right. right, right. And so, I mean, yeah, there's that. I mean, so, I don't know. It's it's hard. It is very, very, very hard for you and me, I think, also, to yeah. to to properly under, to find, to identify, it's very difficult to identify who is purely just a pacifist or who is purely anti-war versus yeah. someone who is, is you know, it... The line between that and like believing in some justified wars is very blurry, uh, especially unless the person just comes out and just says the answer. Right. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, again, yeah. Particularly, particularly, uh, you know, in the time of uh, very explicit wars in his home country. Uh, that he's experiencing on a day-to-day basis that are leftists versus fascists. Uh, right. Being a leftist is not is not an anti-war stance. Right. That's um, absolutely true. Yeah. So yeah, we may um, I, I we may you know with that in mind, I think probably it is safe to say that that is probably his stance is just being anti-fascist. Yeah. Right. 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 Um. Yeah. <laughs> Which would align fine with Cooper's belief system because that that fits into the realm of well it's a necessary war we have to fight right right we don't like right. it but we have to do it right i don't again i don't i feel like i really feel like cooper's trying to be hands off in this he is presenting a story that can be interpreted either way and he knows he's presenting a story that can be interpreted either way and that's his point i yeah i yeah, because there's enough like Full Metal Jacket obviously borrows from the boot camp scenes in this movie. Right. Uh, it is it is abrasive and it is fascistic uh, in its dehumanization of the individual uh, to create a a war unit. Um, we. But at the same time, the movie never says that's explicitly bad, but continues the story of an individual 
having gone through that, who right. who is still just a, as far as society is concerned, big picture is still just a nameless, faceless guy in this war machine. Uh, but as the movie also reminds us, even on a minute level, most war machines are just silly. Right. The machines yeah. of and war themselves. Are silly, yeah. Are silly. Well, and it's interesting that you brought up is like, you know, the idea that like in addressing them on a human level. Well, we talked about this a little bit before in previous episodes, but by by humanizing the soldiers who participated in what you consider a necessary war, you're not necessarily saying that their their degradation was a bad thing or right. their you know what I mean? Like giving names and faces to the people who died in what what is conceived of as a necessary evil right doesn't reduce the belief that it was a necessary evil right like it doesn't take away from that right yeah. it's like oh these were our brothers because you get into that class like, oh, these were our brothers and our sisters who died for us right like giving them names actually glorifies the thing even further right. rather than the opposite effect right what the Ichikawa films we saw recently did was to humanize individual soldiers in a way that portrayed the dehumanizing nature of war to say this is bad, right? And we Absolutely. should not and do it's this. It's obvious. It's clear as right. day, right? Like what's right. happening there. Whereas this humanizes a few individuals, puts them through the dehumanizing process. Uh, in a way to which ultimately says to me, I think from uh, from just the the most outside myself reading I can manage that we need to remember that these are individuals because uh, again going back to uh, the Americanization of Emily interpretation of of what these sorts of things do is that they become heroes in life or death you know. He right. died namelessly on Omaha Beach, but Omaha Beach was a success, so he's a hero. And even if Omaha, even if DJ hadn't been a success, the people who died there would be heroes for having tried. Right. Uh, Absolutely. And everyone who survived is a hero for having survived. Everyone gets to be a hero on D Day as long as they were on the uh, as long as, as they long were, as on, they the were on the right side, side of the fence. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, yeah. No, for sure. And 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 you know, it's interesting to do this right after Ichikawa's work because yeah. Ichikawa's work does. It's important to understand that what we don't see is we see the horrors of the war machine, right, right. in this. We see the horrors of the ramp up to war, the degradation of people and trying to make them less of an individual, right? Yeah. That's not the same thing as what happens when people actually start murdering each other. Right. Like, it's what Ichikawa's work's about. Is, right. It's about the fact that, 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 that you it makes you an animal. You're, he wasn't an animal when he got on that boat. He was less of a, an individual, Right, but he was still a person, and and we talked about this with regards to World War Two earlier. World War Two is really uniquely filmed and handled in society, in that it no one's a, and and Ichikawa is because he comes from the side of Japan is in a better position to do this than anybody on the Allied side is. Even I think that's day, fair. Yeah, of saying like we were monsters. This right. thing made us into a monster. Yeah, maybe we were killing fascists, but we were monsters yeah. who were doing that. That we were not people at that point, right? Because uh, Americans and and people on the Allied side will just do, that's just not a thing you're allowed to say. Yeah, it's it, it's just it's it's very taboo to imply that 
bad, bad things were done by right by Allied soldiers during this war. And and you know the fact that people like Ichikawa can can and you know the different aspects aspects of Japanese culture certainly have different opinions on the war, but the fact that aspects of Japanese culture can acknowledge that they were monsters uh, also makes it easier for the Allied Americans in particular to say, well, they were monstrous and they never would have stopped. So so it's a good thing we did this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and that, and that's, you know, and, and that's an unfortunate side effect of the fact that every country has to come to grips with what happened. Right. And the reality of the matter is, is that no one ever does. Right. Like no one actually has. (laughs) Right. right? Not purely. Right. Because, we we talked last week about the the garbage that happens in Japan all the time about revisionism and stuff like that, uh, and and America isn't even at revisionism. It's just like, well, we've got our story, and this we're sticking to it. This is this is it. Yeah, everybody was a hero. We did the right thing. Consensus maintained. Yeah, 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 and of course that's as true, if not more so, for for the British who. Yeah, we're even. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, more on the front lines of of, of that. Well, and, and by and by their na- and by its nature, the 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 European front just feels cleaner that yeah. way for yeah. everybody, right? Because and then a lot of that has to do with like race and stuff like that, right? Because the European front is this is is a very different dynamic. With regards to race and right. ethnicity, right, right, than than the than the Pacific Front, and that That's changes things, right? It really yeah. does. It really does. I suppose in that regard, Overlord's interesting. In you know, we again, like I said earlier, we barely get any mention of the enemy, right? And uh, the first time the enemy is an actual threat are the last twenty seconds of the movie, right? Ah. Uh, and that's interesting, but it is the story that Overlord wants to tell, and is a story that stops before we land on the beach. So, right, and yeah. and and there, I I have no doubt that you could make a an explicitly anti-war version of this movie. Yeah, in in that you, but like that's that's just not what this is. Uh, and and I and and even even with essentially a similar. Storyline where it ends at that moment on the boat. Essentially, you could still yeah. do it, but you know that's just not. I don't think that's the story he's trying to tell here. And yeah, I think probably he does believe he has. He's mostly hands off, but as we've talked about, that's impossible. Right. Like it just fundamentally is right. We we all agree that he, whatever he took into it is still on that is in that film, and there's no way around that. And then it, you combine that with the fact that it's all blended together with what the cameraman who shot the archival footage brought into the film. Right, right. I mean, that's yeah. going to lean in a specific direction. That's Yeah, all of this ultimately boils down to Cooper apparently being in a mind space that I will never comprehend. No, yeah, for sure. Like, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like... I understand the mind space of the people who made Americanization of Emily. I understand the mind space of the people who made MASH. I understand yeah. the mind space of the people who made uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket, even. 
Um, right, and yeah, I, for sure, yeah. And even into the future, I understand the pro-war aspects of the mind space of the people who made Saving Private Ryan, right, mm-hmm. and the culture it came out of. But to make a movie like Overlord in 1975, I don't understand. Yeah, no, I, I mean, well, we, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, or at least I don't want to understand. Maybe we, I guess. we can because we, it's it, it's important to understand. I think, and, and and this is just my perspective on this. We've never left the Viet, in many ways, never really left the Vietnam situation behind, in the sense that at any given time we have been since then at war. That's fair. And and then different sides, uh, you know, the different sort of facets of that have ebbed and flowed in their intensity, right? We did a lot of secret wars for a long time that didn't get a lot of anti-war movement, right? Right. Because they were they were they just didn't drum up the, the you know the the level of resistance, right? And and that's ebbed back to the point where there's a pretty intense amount of anti-war movement in modern America. And and as a result, we do see sort of um, shades of Vietnam, right? Where yeah. there's people who are explicitly anti-war, or people who are explicitly pro-war, and then there's this nice, thick, gray area uh, soup in the middle of people who make things like Overlord. Right. Because keep in mind, we still definitely have films being made at this time and period that we live in that are kind of in this vein. Right, they're not explicitly pro or anti-war. They they're 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 gritty, realistic war right. films, and even even movies that are explicitly anti-fascist in the way they understand war uh, can be left open to tons of interpretation. I think, for instance, of uh, the works of James Cameron, Aliens, in particular, or Star Wars. Star Wars. Oh yeah, for the, sure. The the uh, the Empire in Star Wars is America. It just mm-hmm. is. And that's, yeah. that's you know, in as much as Lucas can be trusted about anything, that is something Lucas has explicitly said. And, it, uh, and, it, and it's patently obvious, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it's just, he, Lucas is not known for his subtlety. Right. Uh, and it's not, and there is none in Star Wars. Right. So, yeah, it's, yeah, I know. I don't want to dislike a movie because it's not what I want it to be. But I also don't think that Overlord has enough going on objectively for me to really like it. I don't yeah, know I that mean, I hate it by any No, I don't I cert- I do not hate this film. Yeah. Let's be very clear here. I I find the use of archival footage as a sort of backdrop to make your movie on is very interesting. Yeah. I think the dream sequences are very fascinating. Yeah. Uh they're Weird as shit, but they are fascinating, uh, and I think they are literally the best, most redeeming feature of yeah. the film by a long shot. I it is it, they're really interesting in that how that our main character locks into this one woman, right? Who he's not really spent very much time right. with at all. He barely knows, but becomes she is. a linchpin of his entire sort of right internal existence just because it's it's a person that he can sort of ground and hold in. Sp- in place right because everybody else he knows is a part of the war right and she's just at least in his mind not right so he can sort of spin the entire 
Absolutely. The entire thing can revolve around her as being not war. And that's all that's all very interesting. Right. Yeah. Jonathan Rosenbaum in his review of this for the Chicago Reader uh on I believe it's re-release uh called this an interesting failure. <laughs> and I don't know that I agree with him What's on the that failure because part? I don't know what it failed on because I don't know what it was trying to do. <laughs> so what is do you, I mean I I'm sure you didn't read the whole article I did but it. like I did it. Do we have any idea what he says it failed on? Um give me one second and we'll find it out. It might be worth knowing. <laughs> you know what's what's weird? Uh this entire little it's it's a blurb more than a review. Uh so quote Overlord An interesting failure this rarely seen 1975 English feature about World War II combines documentary and fictional elements, though they tend to undermine each other. Uh, director Cooper called a remarkable selection newsreel from the Imperial War Museum, and collaborating with co-writer Christopher Hudson, integrated them into a sincere but cliched story about a young soldier. Shooting in black and white, uh, the brilliant cinematographer John Alcott, who uh, Rosenbaum credits with Barry Lyndon, but, but shot a lot of uh, Kubrick's work. Uh, matches up the dramatic scenes with archival footage, yet the filmmaker's ingenuity often seems misplaced. In particular, added sound effects compromise the precious truth of the documentary materials. End quote. Uh, uh, so I don't... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get where... I get, like, if you... If you believe that, like, archival footage is, to a certain extent... Uh, sacrosanct. Yeah. Messing around with it by its nature would be a mistake, right? Right. So, I don't know. It's it's an interesting little blurb. I don't necessarily know that I know what Rosenbaum's talking about there. Can you think of an instance where there seem to be Um, sound effects added to the archival footage? The the weird stuff that he sort of does with the the bombings. Okay. I, I assume... There's, I don't know that I don't remember sound effects explicitly, but the very beginning, the way uh, Hitler and sort of the airplanes and footage from like, um, oh shit, what's it called? Now I can't the, the Riefenstahl thing. Oh, wow. Triumph of Will. Yeah, yeah, Triumph of Will. That all kind of like is clearly cut up in a really specific way yeah. to almost make it seem like Hitler's flying the airplane over top of the bombings. It, yeah, but it is, that is very cut together in a, a very—that's not entirely way. inaccurate to Triumph of Will. So, no, that's also true. I mean, I yes, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, it, yeah, but like Triumph of Will implies that Hitler flies over and observes the results of his actions or whatever, right? Whereas this one almost makes it seem like Hitler's like, "All right, dudes, let's go," and like flies yeah. the fucking blow up plane. Um, I don't know. It does. He does mess with the footage a little bit. I don't think a lot, and I think I think that becomes less and less as the film progresses forward. By the end, I don't think we're messing with the footage really at all. Yeah, uh, but I feel at the beginning it's closer, like almost like closer to what's happening in that uh, in Germany calling thing. Yeah, at the beginning than it is at the end. Yeah, but the Germany calling is again. Uh, period work. So it's not. Yeah, like I Cooper's, understand that. Yeah, I, Cooper's not adding those that music. No, and, no, no. And recutting. What, what I what I'm saying yeah. is that I feel like Cooper's work at the beginning of the film with the archival footage is closer to that 
yeah. in the end. By the time we get fair. to the like, D-Day scenes, they're just fucking D-Day scenes. They're right. nothing else. They're just, here's some D-Day scenes for you. Please enjoy. Yeah. By the time the, we get to the end of the film. Whereas at the beginning, things are a lot chop, more chopped up because he's trying to match it to the narrative. And by the time we get to the end of the film, there is no more narrative. The last 20 minutes of this film doesn't actually have much of a narrative because it's just literally waiting for a dude to get shot. Right. So we're just showing random D-Day footage. Whereas at the beginning, the the archival footage is actually, uh, they're trying to use it to support a narrative. I think it's about time we pull this one to a close. Though. Yeah, this is a long one. <laughs> turns out. We've been talking about Overlord, uh, the 1975 uh, synthesis of archival footage and uh, and uh, newly shot narrative by Stuart Cooper uh, set uh, in the build-up to the D-Day invasion. Uh, yeah, it's interesting in ways, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if uh, it's all that interesting. <laughs> Next week, we'll be talking about a uh, another Jules Dassin film. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about The Naked City from uh, 1948. And next week, we're talking about 1947's Brute Force, starring Burt Lancaster. Look forward to that. Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oetard Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com/LostInCriterion. We'd appreciate it. What a good podcast day it is! Did you say podcast or podcast? <laughs> I. Can't say for certain. I like the idea that you and I rebrand our <laughs> podcast into something as a, as a podcast. Uh, I think it could work. Uh, we'll be unique in our own space. We'll be competing against a field of zero people. What does a podcast mean to you, Matt? Uh, I I don't know yet, but I'm, I I kind of think about potatoes. I get that. It gives me a I potato feeling. I say podcast, and I think to myself, potatoes. I can't explain it. It doesn't really sound like potatoes, but the first time you said it, I imagine a baked potato.